The views, information, and opinions expressed in this podcast are solely those of the speakers and do not represent Holding Short Media nor any organization that the speakers have been, currently are, or will be affiliated with. Welcome to the Holding Short Podcast. I'm your host, Laura Matheson. Today we are joined by Warwick Patterson. Growing up, airplanes were an obsession for Warwick, and he has it on good authority that airplane was his first word. He was fortunate enough to grow up flying in his father's plane, in addition to spending time as an air cadet, and so felt entirely comfortable around aviation. In spite of this, he did not earn his PPL until 2017, when he was in his mid-30s. The month following his flight test, He partnered with a friend on a Cessna 172 and has not looked back. As someone exposed to aviation at an early age, Warwick often wonders why it took him so long to get into it. This is partly why he finds himself getting involved with organizations like the Canadian Owners and Pilots Association and the BC General Aviation Association, now trying to connect people who have a passion for aviation with the opportunities available. For over 20 years, Warwick has been the owner of Formula Photographic Inc., a production company specializing in documentary and automotive films. During the pandemic, he started the Flying BC podcast and video series as a means to further explore the aviation community. He admits he tends to dive headfirst into what he is most passionate about, and through video and photography, is able to best express and share these passions with others. Warwick is currently working on his commercial license, with plans to move on to flight instructing. His long-term goal is to open a specialty flying school and to maybe convince someone to let him fly their warbirds along the way. I am so excited to have him join me today. Welcome, Warwick. Thanks for having me. All that to say, how did you get your start in aviation? Um, well, like a lot of people who find themselves in aviation, I, I kind of had a family that, were, that was into it. Um, uh, my, my father had a plane when I was a kid. So I flew a lot with him. My mom was actually pregnant when she was taking her flight training with me. <laughs> um, so I, I guess it's in my blood, you could say. Um, but it's kind of interesting that I was super passionate about airplanes when I was a kid. I flew quite a bit. Um, didn't take any lessons. And I, I joined cadets thinking, oh, I'd get my scholarship and I could go learn to fly that way. But uh, other interests came about, mountain biking, things like that. And uh, I just never really went anywhere with aviation myself until my mid thirties. Um, and then I kind of realized if I was going to do it, now's the time. And uh, yeah, I started taking some lessons and then the Olympics came along out here and I got really busy with work and stopped. And it was a, probably another five years before I actually went and finished my PPL in 2017. I was in my mid thirties then. Um, and yeah, bought a Cessna with a partner and never looked back. Now, given your work with the uh, Vancouver Olympics, I guess the fact that they were in British Columbia being a big draw, what sort of work were you doing with the Olympic Committee? Uh, so I'm a photographer and videographer um, by trade. And during the Olympics, I was doing live edits. So we would have all the highlight reels come in and there was uh, two or three big screens in the village in Whistler. 
um, for all the fans to watch. And we would pull in the highlights. We'd also be recording interviews, things like that. And I would be packaging those up and putting them out to the big screens. So it was uh, basically a month with the Paralympics. And uh, there's a photo I have of me standing outside and I look exhausted. I'm just, <laughs> it was like 6 a.m. to midnight every single day for a month. I mean, I know as a Canadian watching the Vancouver Olympics, it was something that was so special and magical. There was just this excitement and fervor that was throughout the whole country the entire time. And some of the most iconic footage of that time being the U.S.-Canada men's hockey game going into overtime. Uh, But just to be a part of that, as opposed to just being a viewer at home, must have been truly phenomenal. Yeah, the atmosphere was incredible. Like You hear about those things and you hear about the Olympics, uh, how they're such a big... Um, like a party and a, a celebration and it, it really is like it brought people from all over the world around to to Whistler and now with that having a background as a photographer filmmaker and producer why did you choose to start podcasting in general I kind of dive headfirst into things I'm passionate about um, I was a mountain biker and I dove headfirst into video and photos for that and that's how I started my career in this and then uh, I was passionate about cars, and so I've, the latter part of my career has been um, documentaries and motorsport and automotive um, video production. And then, of course, when I got into aviation, I wanted to take photos and uh, video and do all that. When the pandemic hit, um, I started thinking, like, okay, well, how how can I continue networking and meeting people um, and promoting aviation? And there was, uh, I, I put out my first episode, Ryan Van Heron also put out an episode right around the same time. Cause I had him as a guest on the first episode and he's like, Oh, this is kind of cool. So we both motivated each other a little bit, um, putting out episodes and, um, it was just something fun to do while we're locked down, obviously. And, uh, I, I originally intended to do more videos, but with nothing to film <laughs> the audio format and interview format seemed to be a good way. Um, yeah, and I guess I also have aspirations to, I'm doing my CPL right now. I'm going to get my flight instructor certificate and my long-term goal is to open a specialty flying school. Um, so whether that's backcountry or, uh, tailwheel, things like that. Um, I really wanted to kind of network, get to know people, um, pod, interviewing, like whether it's written magazine format or podcast or even video, it's, such a good way to meet people and pick their brains and learn new things at the same time as sharing that with other people. It definitely is an interesting medium and came at a time, I think, really in popularity when everyone was maybe a bit distanced from one another. But given the idea of filming and the just photo, uh, photography element of motorsports, what are some of the unique challenges that you have when it comes to film production there versus maybe with aviation? Yeah, I, I I tend to choose difficult <laughs> topics to shoot. Um, motorsports is is difficult, or, or not difficult, it's challenging. Um, and aviation has been a fun new challenge. Um, obviously, there's some more coordination and logistics involved if you're trying to do air to air, and that's there's certainly a safety aspect to that. You really got to pay attention to that. Um, it's easy to go up and fly two planes beside each other and shoot photos, but there's really some elements there that need to be taken seriously. Um, you, you need to coordinate it. Like if something goes wrong, 
both planes need to know what to do. Um, so you can't just wing it. So that's, I've been learning a lot about that. Um, and just trying to take it seriously and do it professionally. Now you've produced many high quality videos of your flying experiences on YouTube and on Instagram. What are some of the challenges that are specific to aviation content creation, particularly right now? Well, obviously right now, it's just the fact that we aren't flying a whole lot. Um, we've been lucky in BC. We've, we've haven't been quite as locked down as other parts of the country. So we've still been able to go to the airport, go flying. Uh, but certainly the gatherings, the flyouts, um, that's sort of what I wanted to focus on was uh, the social aspect of aviation and the adventure opportunities. Because um, I think that's what a lot of, certainly here in BC, a lot of the young people getting into aviation see it as a way to access adventure. And mm -hmm. they might be mountain bikers or skiers, snowmobilers, and they see aviation as sort of a sport like that. Um, as, as well as career opportunities. Now, has there been a particular aviation shoot that you've done that has really stuck with you or had a lot of challenges that when you finally managed to make it work, it was particularly satisfying? Well, I, I, um, I really appreciate Steve Thorne and Flight Chops because he um, brought me onto a couple shoots early on and we went to Alaska together and did all the float plane flying up there. So that shoot is still one of my best shoots. We spent, uh, I think, 10 days there. And because it was July, we actually spent July 1st flying the Beaver, which was kind of a cool Canadian thing to do. But because the days were so long, we'd be done filming. And then uh, Martin was like, well, you want to go fly some float planes? And so at 11 p.m., I'd get to go out in the Cub, and I did about six hours of float plane flying up there with them. So that was a lot of fun. I mean, doing that so early on, it would be truly hard to top, but uh, Steve Zorn is recognized for the excellent content he puts out. So being able to have him uh, sort of help influence you and maybe develop the way that you wanted to go about aviation content creation yourself, that would be such a tremendous gift and a really fun chance. Yeah, and he's, his whole thing is about context, right? So he, it's not just beautiful footage. He's trying to tell a story and show the training aspects in context mm -hmm. um, so that it's you know where the advice is coming from you know when to use that advice um, so that's that was really important to me and that taught me that i need to tell a story um, i i've done i've certainly put out instagram videos and things that are just highlights but the videos i want to tell are the really story driven things um, so i did a video with um Kevin Mayer and Scratch Mitchell. And Kevin was getting his airshow um, waiver basically to fly to Harvard in airshows. And this was last year. So he hasn't been able to fly, but it was a really interesting process to go through that and just watch as Scratch, who was a snowboard leader, mm -hmm. teach Kevin some of the aspects. It's basically an exam, but at the same time, the good, um, the good uh, partnerships that happen there. They now, both, both people learn a lot. Now you yourself have interest in maybe getting to fly a warbird one day. Yeah, that's why I'm doing this. <laughs> that, that's my, my, my goal one day. Um, I don't know if I'll ever be able to afford one myself, but um, there's, I've thought about it a lot that there's all these warbirds. They're all flown by sort of older people. 
um, there's going to need to be a new generation of pilots who fly these things for museums and things like that. So why not me? <laughs> How do you see the fact that we have the warbirds, they're still able to fly and the group that flies those aircraft will be retiring or leaving flying in the next 10 to 15 years. Do you see a real opportunity for general aviation pilots or those even holding a commercial ticket, but not necessarily working in a 703 or beyond operation, having the opportunity themselves to go fly there? For sure. I think there's always opportunities. Um, if you want something, you're going to find a way to make it happen. Um, certainly people who go on to be a commercial pilot gain hours, especially if you're flying interesting things like, uh, I don't know, crop dusters, uh, water bombers, things like that. You're gaining experience that will really make you a safe pilot, somebody who can analyze risk and um, good hands and feet. I think that's what warbirds need is good hands and feet to really fly by feel and be somebody who's very regimented. And this is the procedures for flying those things. This is what is done when things go wrong. You need to know all that stuff really well. Um, they're, I don't think they're hard to fly. Like I flew the Harvard, um, I've flown a chipmunk. Um, from the limited, limited experience I have, they're not, they're not going to bite you. They're not inherently dangerous, but when things go wrong, you need to know what to do. Mm -hmm. Now, beyond the Harvard, beyond the chipmunk, is there another model of warbird that you'd really love to fly? Well, certainly a Spitfire. I think that's uh, high on the list for a lot of people. Um, one day I'd love to go to Boltby Academy in England and fly their plane. Yeah, hard to say. That's probably top of the list. But I, actually, the, the plane I really, really want in the hangar is a chipmunk. I mean, once you have the opportunity to be around warbirds or have a flight in one, you really do get a bug for that particular niche of the aviation industry. Yeah. I, yeah. The chipmunk's such a nice flying airplane. Um, my father has a bit of history with chipmunks. He flew them in the air experience in England. Um, so there's some nostalgia there too, I guess, for me. Um, and anything sort of like a biplane, a steerman, something like that. Just something that's really hands and feet, old world aviation. There's some appeal to that for me. Now, what about a Lancaster? Just throwing that out there. Uh, that's pretty intimidating, but I would, I would certainly give it a shot. Um, even just to fly in a Lancaster would be great. Now, what advice would you have for those starting out filming aviation content? Uh, for people starting out filming, uh, I would kind of go back to my point of take it seriously. Um, don't just wing it, uh, especially if you're doing air to air or, um, things like that, but there's, um, take it seriously, treat safety seriously, but also try and find the story. Um, like what, what are you trying to tell people or what, what element of aviation are you trying to share with others? Like, are you trying to share it with enthusiasts who already know a lot about aviation? Uh, are you trying to hit people who don't know much about aviation? So try and find an angle there. I think that's important. Um, there's a lot of aviation content out there. So if you can find a niche, um, that'd be key. That's kind of why with flying BC, I just said, okay, it's going to be BC based. Um, that, that will waver a little bit. Like I interviewed Dave Hatfield. Uh, the tenuous connection was that he flew a Spitfire to BC, but he was just somebody, somebody interesting I wanted to interview. Um, but if you have a, have a niche and a focus, it gives you some direction. 
And there is a wealth of knowledge and experience within BC Aviation, whether it's uh, float planes, the fact that you guys have the coastal float planes with uh, saltwater uh, versus, I mean, in addition to just the mountains, there's so much to be had within general aviation in British Columbia. Yeah, certainly there's tons of opportunity here at BC for um, content. Like you have bush flying, um, training, there's a few warbirds kicking around. You got uh, firefighters, um, uh, float planes, obviously, yeah, float planes on the on the ocean and on lakes. Um, so I figured there's plenty of content to keep me going for a little while here. And also it's where I fly. So I wanted to be able to fly somewhere, meet some people, use it as an excuse to get out. There would obviously be that networking potential as well, having it sort of within your own backyard. Yeah, exactly. The, the, the networking, for sure. I wanted to meet the people locally. And also, especially when I was brought on as a COPA director, I wanted to, I still haven't been able to, but hopefully this summer, go and fly around the province and meet the COPA flights and meet the people in the province and find out what their problems are and what, they're, what they need help with and things like that. So. Now, in late 2020, you sold your Cessna 172 and purchased a Mall M4 210. The sale process for aircraft is already complex enough, but how did COVID impact your ability to sell as well as to shop for a replacement aircraft? Yeah, buying and selling is quite the, um, it's pretty daunting. Um, I've now bought two planes and sold one. Um, COVID actually didn't seem to really add too much to it. Um, certainly you can't just meet up with people take them flying. Uh, I had to be a little particular about when, when people could come and actually see the plane. Um, you get a lot of tire kickers too, I found. Um, when you start posting a plane for sale, you get a lot of people emailing and, hey, can I come see it? And a lot of them aren't really that interested, but they just want to come and see a plane uh, and maybe try and talk you into going for a flight. So I, I soon learned that there's some qualifying criteria before you actually get to come and see it. Um, they have to show that you're you're uh, serious about it. And I actually went with a broker in the end because um, there were so many tire kickers. And uh, I just, I, I went with the broker and said, okay, you, you deal with it. This is how much I want for it. And uh, that, that was pretty good. They, they charge a percentage, but it's not that much. And they do a lot of legwork for you. And then buying my plane, um, the mall was through word of mouth. Um, somebody said, hey, there's this plane in a hangar. Uh, I know you're looking for a mall. You should go check it out. So that one was much easier. Now, what drew you to the mall as a potential new aircraft? Well, with my goal, long-term goal to fly warbirds and uh, that, and sort of be in the specialty flight training area, I really wanted to get my tailwheel chops. Um, and I, I also wanted to go places where my Cessna couldn't go. Uh, I saw people having fun on the gravel bars, and backcountry strips, and um, while the Cessna might, got, might get in, it probably won't get out. <laughs> so um, yeah, I just wanted something a little more capable, something tailwheel, and uh, the mall ticked a lot of boxes, and at the time, they were still quite good value. Um, like every plane right now, they've gone through the roof price-wise, so I got in right at the right time. Um, and they're pretty much equivalent to a 180, I feel, a Cessna mm -hmm. 180. 
um, and the system 180s are pretty expensive. Um, similar, similar load, similar performance. Uh, they're fabric instead of metal, or at least the fuselage is fabric on them all, but um, the wings are metal. So it ticked a lot of boxes, and um, yeah, it, I haven't haven't regretted it one bit. It's been awesome. And I mean, the Malt is such a versatile aircraft. I know you can put them on floats quite easily. And the fact that yours being particularly a tailwheel conversion, what was it like to go through the process of getting a tailwheel checkout and endorsement? Yeah, so when I knew I was going to buy it, there's kind of a long protracted process of making an offer, it going through inspection. So I started going with David McIntosh. Um, he was uh, a furloughed pilot. And he's like, well, I've got lots of table time. So I went with him, you know, Cessna 170 and got about 10 hours with him. Um, and then when I actually got them all, the insurance requirements weren't that onerous. Um, they just said I needed a checkout, but I knew I needed a lot more than that. So I did probably another 10 hours. I think I had 20 hours total by the time I sold Tailwheel. And uh, there's a few moments in there that, caught my attention like okay these things can bite you if you're not careful um yeah it was uh just good instructors i went with several different instructors too and they all teach you something different now do you think that it's better to have a situation where we have just a tailwheel checkout in canada versus a tailwheel endorsement that you see done in the u.s do you think there's uh maybe more value in having an endorsement if that's something that you're able to do versus just a checkout or really do you just want to meet what insurance is telling you to do? Um, yeah, that's a good question. I don't think you need an endorsement. Uh, most insurance companies will require a certain amount of hours, um, especially if you're a fresh tailwheel pilot like me. Um, they range from everything from, we can't give you a quote until you get 50 to hundred hours on tailwheel to, yeah, you just need to sign out a sign off by an instructor. Hmm. Um, so my insurance that I went with actually was just the, you need to sign off. I, there was no hours attached, but I challenge anybody to be able to jump straight into a tailwheel and be able to fly it. It's, <laughs> it takes some, it takes some getting used to that said, they're not that much harder to fly. You just need to realize what's going on. You need to understand the physics. Maybe you need to have a couple of those moments that the instructor saves to make you realize, um, and just move your feet a lot more. Um, so I don't think we need an actual endorsement, but certainly you need time with an instructor. I kept on, like when I was challenged and I was feeling frustrated at the beginning, I just kept on reminding myself that 40 years ago, everybody learned on a tail dragger. Like everybody who went to war in a, <laughs> a warbird um, learned on a tail dragger. So they're not inherently that much more difficult. They're just you have to be more on top of them than a tricycle gear. Mm -hmm. Now, as you mentioned, uh, your podcast is based within BC general aviation. You fly yourself within BC and in the mountainous, mountainous terrain that comes with that. How do you approach mountain flying and staying current when you have mountain operations? I was really lucky that I did all my flight training at Glacier Air in Squamish, where I live. Um, and you're in a valley with mountains all around you, basically every flight is a mountain flight. Even the downwind for runway one five, you go past a, it's not a mountain, but it's a hill and there's always funky winds coming off of it. Mm -hmm. um, 
so I've never actually really done any specific mountain training. I've read a lot of books, um, watched a lot of videos, and also during my training here, they, they teach you things as you go along. Um, so, and I've always, I've always taken it upon myself to really learn about the weather, learn how to read the winds. Um, and it, there's not really a whole lot of rocket science to it. If you think of um, like a stream, water running down a stream with rocks in it, like the air acts very similar to that. Um, and so if you can visualize sort of rotors on the backside of rocks in a stream, you can understand what's going to happen on the backside of a mountain. Um, and there's little tips and tricks, like you don't fly up the middle of a valley, you fly up the side, so there's lots of room to turn. Um, so as long as you are sensible, you've done some reading, you've maybe get a mountain checkout. Um, I'm not a big believer in the half-hour mountain checkouts that you get around here. You don't learn a whole lot, um, but I guess you learn the basics. Um, yeah, just you have to go and fly in the mountains to learn and go with somebody who's experienced if you're not comfortable and watch the winds, make sure it's not a 30-knot wind day in the mountains. Now, Glacier Air in particular uh, for a flight school has a lot of very interesting uh, specialties that they do train for. Yeah, Glacier is great. They, um, it's a 2,400-foot, 75-foot-wide runway, um, so it's a lot of people are, would consider it a short and narrow strip. Um, there's 100-foot trees on the approach. So you're kind of dropping it over the trees with a big wind shear almost every, every day. We get a lot of wind here, too. Um, and uh, yeah, they have tailwheel, mountain flying, aerobatics, and then obviously a couple 172s for training. And they're slammed. They're so busy there. Um, with Whistler just up the road, there's a lot of sort of action sports people who are into learning new things, trying new sports. And so there's a lot of people coming down from there. Now, is there a particular reason you find that different people find mountain flying and flying in BC almost like an extreme sport? Or is it just that there is the mountain element, there's a very big sort of extreme sport community on the West Coast? And does it all just sort of carry over and blend into one another? Yeah, I think the flying in BC lends itself to sort of the adventurous people, um, people who are seeking out adventure. Um, certainly in the last few years with people like Trent Palmer and the Flying Cowboys and all their videos, that's become a, a thing. Backcountry flying is really driving the sport right now, uh, driving aviation. Um, and so that appeals to a lot of people, especially the adventurous younger people who want to get their pilot's license. So we see in the last three years, we've probably seen the Flying Club and Squamish go from exclusively Cherokees and Cessnas. Now we've got Piper Cubs, my mall, uh, a couple of bear hawks. Um, so it, the, even the chain, the planes are changing. So it's interesting to see. And we, are, we definitely are seeing more of an emphasis on backcountry and remote types, flying, uh, remote types of flying on social media. It seems a little less taboo, a little bit more accessible. And of course, the groups that are showcasing this type of flying also really emphasize how fun it is. Yeah, and I think there needs to be some balance with that. Like you, they need to 
show a little more of how serious things that and they they do they show how serious they take it the training you need um it's it's certainly a fun and adventurous part of aviation but it definitely takes you can't jump from your ppl straight into backcountry gravel bar flying it takes experience Mm -hmm. i'm 400 hours in and learning tailwheel and i'm nowhere near willing to do that sort of stuff i've I've done some river gravel bars and stuff but they're also 3500 feet long and 300 feet wide so it's like a runway now taking into consideration safety your more recent flying photos and footage show you wearing a helmet what made you decide to switch to wearing a helmet for flying yeah that was an interesting discussion that came up last year one of my early podcast episodes we had a round table about helmets and um i mean i wear a helmet for everything else biking skiing uh, if you're in a race car, you wear one. So I, certainly for backcountry operations, I bought one. I bought one of the Sky Cowboys helmets and just makes me feel a little more comfortable. Um, if, if you crash a plane, you might survive it. But if you're unconscious and the plane catches fire, you're not going to get out. So if I can prevent myself from being knocked unconscious, especially in the mall where there's two big V-bars going to the dash, um, Actually, I guess my trip to Alaska was a big part of that too, because helmets are pretty common up there. Martin, who we were flying with, he said um, they've found people like stuck in their plane in the backcountry, and the crash wasn't that bad, but they were either knocked unconscious or he said that even their like heads get stuck in that V bar. Um, so it just made sense to me to go and get one. It doesn't have to be that expensive. Um, there's definitely some fancy aviation helmets, but the Sky Cowboys one, it's like a, it's like a ski helmet. It's based on the Team Wendy SAR helmet. So it's got good venting. Um, yeah, it's like a ski helmet with a visor. I remember being at a Casera talk a few years ago, and they ran through the different possibilities when it came to aviation safety. One being, have you ever considered the possibility that you, the pilot, are unconscious, incapacitated, but your passenger, a non-aviation passenger, is fully conscious, do they know what to do to save themselves and to keep you both safe? So the idea of you, the pilot, wearing uh, a helmet, I mean, that at least does not necessarily eliminate, but it greatly reduces the chances of you, maybe the person that knows how to keep everyone safe, would find themselves incapacitated. Yeah, and a lot of people's argument is, well, you have a helmet on, why doesn't everybody else in the plane have one? And yeah, they probably should. Like, I'm going to get one for my partner, Isabel. Um, but yeah, if the pilot is incapacitated, then who's flying the plane? So it makes makes sense that at least the pilot has one. Mm-hmm. Do you think we'll see more and more pilots, especially those maybe doing more backcountry or operations that could be a bit more remote? Do you think we'll see more and more pilots wearing helmets? I think so. Like, you think back of when skiing started adopting it, it took a took five, 10 years. Um, I've already seen more people wearing helmets here. Um, so it's, it's becoming a thing. And as more helmets come available on the market that aren't like Top Gun lookalike helmets, I think more people will adopt it. It's not something I see, I've ever seen out here. So that's, I, I find it interesting that it's becoming maybe a new safety phenomena within aviation. It's completely new to me. Yeah. And certainly, I think in the mountains, um, it translates more, I guess, with backcountry stuff. Um, 
but you can easily get in trouble in a 172 as well. So I, it's my mall actually don't fit in the mall right now with my helmet on. Uh, the seats have too much cushioning, so I'm getting that fixed. But um, I wore my helmet all last summer in the Cessna, and it takes a little while. Sometimes you step out of the plane with a helmet on and you feel goofy, but um, I'm, I'm I'm okay with that. It's like the same for uh, motorcycles, dress for the slide, not for the ride. You might feel a bit goofy, but it's, <laughs> if that's the difference between keeping you safe or not, you may as well. Absolutely, yeah. And there are a couple things to think about too with helmets. Um, the connectors, um, like if you're jumping out of a plane that's on fire um, and you haven't unplugged your connectors and they're in, if they're the dual GA plugs, they're, they're not going to pull out of the dashboard. So I've now got a, a little extension whip that swivels so that whichever direction I'm pulling on it, the plugs are straight in line. Um, so they'll actually unplug. Because uh, that was a, I think Kevin Mayer was the one who brought that up in our podcast. Like if you ever try pulling on a headset plug slightly sideways, they're never coming out of the dashboard. So um, no, that, that is an excellent that's, point. Yeah. And so if I got a new helmet, I would probably get the Limo plugs, the helicopter, like single plugs and then just have an adapter to GA. I guess, yeah, we do see more helmets within rotary. Yeah, yeah, and, and that's, I think a lot of that is due to proximity flying. They're flying right next to trees. Um, they're landing on narrow platforms. So. Hmm. Yeah, now that, as soon as you said uh, the helicopter ones, I was like, well, yeah, we see rotary pilots with helmets. I don't know why it Absolutely. seems so bizarre to me, but like, of course, there's a whole facet of aviation that wears helmets. We just general aviation, yeah. maybe for fixed wing aircraft, doesn't seem to do that, huh? Yeah, and, and like spray operators, they wear them. Um, anybody who flies in a high risk environment usually wears a helmet. See, now I'm going to just only notice helmets. Now I just sort of yeah. <laughs> like a yellow car. I'm just only going to notice helmets now. Yep. So you've been a longstanding advocate for the aviation community and have given a lot of your time to volunteering for a variety of organizations. In 2020, you were elected as a director of the Canadian Owners and Pilots Association for British Columbia and the Yukon Territory. What does holding this position mean to you? Yeah, holding the director position is important to me. I, I feel like it kind of goes back to my, my story of I was super into airplanes. I had every opportunity to learn to fly airplanes, but I didn't. So where was the disconnect there? And I think there's a lot of kids and even adults out there like that who love airplanes, but feel like it's out of reach. Um, like my first Cessna, well, with a partnership cost me half the cost of my truck. Um, like it's not crazy expensive to get into aviation if it's something you really want to do and prioritize. So I wanted to get involved and help figure out ways to bridge those gaps. Um, I'm passionate about aviation. I want to share that. I also felt like COPA maybe needed a shot in the arm uh, with newer people involved. Um, and that's certainly happening. Uh, there's a great, great group of people at COPA. Um, there's more engagement with members now, I think. Um, so I wanted to bring sort of my media savvy, um, communication skills, things like that to the table. And also just um, give people and COPA members in BC someone they can turn to to help them with whatever their problems are. And certainly they, they do. I've probably got a couple of emails every week with people saying like, hey, we're getting kicked out of our hangar or um, 
hey, we have this problem with landing fees. Can you help? And I'll send that up the chain to Copa HQ, and they always craft a response and look into it and find the details for them. Now, you came into the director position in 2020, and as you mentioned, you were not able to fulfill the hope you'd had of flying throughout the province and getting to meet the different Copa flights. When, when everything is maybe more open again, what do you hope to do as a director? What are your sort of top priorities? I think my top priority is re-engaging all the COPA flights uh, around the province. I feel like a lot of them, as people don't join COPA, maybe they lose their members who were COPA members, um, or they just feel there's no benefit to them, or there's no connection to COPA. Um, but I think, I think there's an opportunity to reconnect with all those COPA flights and COPA members and re-engage them and see like, oh no, they actually, it's a benefit to be involved. Um, and if they have somebody from COPA reaching out to them and like valuing their input, that's, that's important. Mm -hmm. And obviously you want to get more, more people joining COPA. Um, I started, I get a package of the magazines every month and I started putting a sticker on there saying, Hey, did you know students get a free, uh, one-year membership? And I put them at the, at Glacier Air here. And, um, the, I've had a couple of people email about that. So just little things like that to help re-engage. Mm -hmm. Do you find we're seeing less and less maybe uh, younger pilots joining COPA because there has been, at least until 2020, uh, a tremendous sort of pipeline to the major operators uh, commercially and that people are maybe skipping out on general aviation? I definitely, yeah, that's probably part of it. Um, I think anybody who's somewhat interested in aviation or even just see it as a good job opportunity, they were just going through the, the pipeline, the training and straight off to um, the airlines. Promoting general aviation as something to be enjoyed itself is super important. Um, that's why I think maybe the adventure flying stuff is being so popular right now. And that's where mm -hmm. we're seeing the growth is because like, oh, this flying a small little plane is actually something in itself. It, it's not just a stepping stone to the airlines. Um, so yeah, hopefully, hopefully that uh, ticks up, gets more promotion. And then of course, all the wonderful things you can do in a general aviation aircraft that you would likely never find yourself able to do in a commercial setting. Yeah, the one thing I tell people here, like you spend uh, an hour and a half on a ferry and three or four hours in a car to get from the mainland to Tofino to go surfing. And the thing I always put in people's ear is like, oh yeah, it takes 55 minutes by plane to get over to Tofino to go surfing. They're like, what, really? And the little things like that, that make them realize that there's more to this. So even, I don't know what the airports are in Muskoka and stuff, but people could like jump in their plane and go to their cottage, and not have to deal with the traffic in Toronto. Uh, A lot of people do. Yeah. <laughs> so it's, and honestly, even just, I think we need to do some work on making aviation and partnerships and block time and things like that more accessible. Because sure, not everybody can afford a plane. Um, but to get your private license is not that expensive. Like people buy snowmobiles for the same price and they replace them every two years. Whereas you pay 15 grand once, you've got a license that lasts your entire life. Um, but people fall off because there's no planes to rent or partner on. So I think that's something we need to work on. 
because uh, if you can go buy four hours of black time a month, then you're current and you're getting to fly and keep that stoke alive. Now with the various organizational volunteer roles you hold, what does it mean for you to represent your community, particularly BC Aviation? I guess just being able to represent BC on the national stage. Um, we, we have a bit of a different aviation community out here, um, just in terms of the type of flying. Um, but at the same time, the numbers are back east, so the population is back east. So we, we need to all team together, and there's power in numbers for sure uh, when it comes to lobbying government. Like that so we have unique needs out here but at the same time we're all pulling in the same direction like we want airports to stay open flying to be affordable um and i think that's a common issue across the country and especially with the pandemic maybe there's been airport closures or landing fees put into place that we had not seen previously so it is an important time for general aviation nationwide to come together and really lobby for the freedom to fly yeah for sure and that's copa does a ton of work in the background like i had no idea until i started getting involved um people, there's a lot of people who complain on social media and stuff like oh copa doesn't do anything for us or their specific issue they weren't able to solve it um but headquarters and every director is constantly um trying to research data um offer letters of support to initiatives. Um, they even have the freedom to fly fund when financial or legal um, issues come up. Um, so there's, yeah, as we, especially in the pandemic, like airports are struggling, like Owen Sound's got $35 landing fees or something like that right now. And um, there's definitely efforts going on behind the scenes for all that stuff. So. Now, who is someone in aviation you admire and why? Uh, I, guess, I guess the two people who pop into my head are um, Kevin Mayer. He's a Air Canada captain out here. Um, he flies a steerman. He's restoring a steerman. Um, but he, he flew a steerman and a Harvard. And he's, he's, reached, he's a great mentor to a lot of people, I think. And he's been there for me and offered me advice and came on the podcast and took me up in the Harvard. Um, and he, he's very, he, he thinks through these problems. He's thinking, been thinking a long time about aviation issues and problems and how to teach it and things like that. So he's, he's somebody I look up to. Um, I really enjoy talking to Dave Hadfield um, on the podcast because he, obviously has a lot of experience as a, as a captain, but also has, has gone into the warbird flying. So that was somebody I look up to, like I'd love to follow that path. Um, and he's very methodical and his, his videos online of startup procedures and flying the warbirds are fun to watch. I've not been fortunate enough to meet either of them, but I've only heard wonderful things. So having the opportunity to know them more directly and to learn from them, I think that's, uh, very, very cool. Yeah, and I think mentors are important in aviation because you, you can learn, you can only learn so much from a book mm -hmm. or from instructors. Like the instruction in Canada and around the world is kind of backwards. You're learning from the lowest time pilots. 
So if you find a mentor who has 20,000 hours flying crop dusting and airliners and all sorts of stuff, like you're going to learn so much from those people. Mm -hmm. Now, would you please share with me a favorite memory or highlight from any point in your flying? Oh, favorite highlight or memory is tough. There's so many, like every time you go flying and there's a highlight memory for sure. Um, Alaska is up there. Just the scale of Alaska is incredible. We were flying up the Ruth Glacier and I was in the 180 and we were filming air to air with the beaver and the beaver got ahead of us. And he was, I think a mile ahead of us, but he was gone. Like the scale of the mountains, he was this tiny little speck. I finally found it on the photos afterwards. This tiny little speck a mile away in the mountains. And you got a big respect for Alaska in that, that moment. That would be particularly hard to top. And I find it so interesting having a background in mountainous flying that Alaska really for you was able to maybe put that into a scale or to really just emphasize how fabulous and just the challenges that come with mountain flying or even just glacier flying. Yeah, and you realize how easy it is to lose a plane in the mountains. Like if you have to put it down in the mountains, sure hope your ELT or uh, locator beacon went off because you, there's, yeah, you just disappear in the mountains. Now, do you have plans to go back to Alaska? I would definitely like to. I'd like to. Uh, I'd like to go get checked out on the Beaver properly. I got a. I got 0.9 hours in the Beaver uh, while I was up there, but I'd love to go back. It's it's a dual control Beaver, which is hard to find commercially. Um, so I, yeah, that'd be that'd be fun. 0.9 hours does not sound like nearly enough. So I really hope you have that opportunity. Yeah, I probably I don't know how many hours I got in the back filming from the Beaver, but um, yeah, 0.9 in the left seat, but uh, it was a good start. Now, before we wrap up today, where can our listeners find you on social media? Yeah, social media is uh, at Flying British Columbia on Instagram, uh, Flying BC on Facebook. Uh, Instagram is probably where I post the most stuff. Um, and then obviously the podcast can be found on Apple, Spotify, all the usual places. Um, and I think that's it. We will be sure to have those links in the episode description for our listeners. Warwick Patterson, thank you so much for joining me today. Yeah, thank you very much for having me on. And uh, to all the creators and wannabe creators who want to make content, just go for it. It's a lot of fun. The Holding Short Podcast is a production of Holding Short Media. The show is written and hosted by me, Laura Matheson, and edited and produced by Cameron Bokoff. Our music is an original composition of Riley Searles. If you would like to learn more about the show, the Holding Short podcast is on Instagram and Facebook at Holding Short Media. Please subscribe, rate, and review us.